Welcome to this special edition of the PJ Pod. 2022 is nearly over, so we thought it's a good time to unpick some of the biggest pharmacy stories of the past year and shine a light on some of the highlights from the podcast. Mm, I think that was it. I haven't got any more spit left. <laughs> just need to collect a little while more. <laughs> mm. Okay, so we just dip it into the water, just in case there's anything in the bucket left from previous sampling. If it were making you forgetful and not helping with the itchy, then we might choose to stop. Getting forgetful this old age, you know. I know. <laughs> you're <laughs> almost twice my age. You're too young. As you can hear, the PJ Pod team has travelled the length of the country and beyond this year, getting their hands dirty to cover the issues of the day. Today, they're all safely back in PJHQ, and in fact, surrounding me in this makeshift studio, eyeing me very suspiciously and quietly eating mince pies like little mice. Hello, <laughs> podcast team. Hello, Hi, Nigel. I'm Nigel Pratis, executive editor of the PJ. We'll meet all the team individually as we move through the episode, and I'll be putting everyone on the spot to make their grand predictions for 2023. What will be next year's big stories? In fact, that reminds me, the team made wild predictions in last year's end of the year podcast, so today we can reveal the extent of their predictive powers. Uh Uh-oh. Or not. (laughs) Okay, so there's a lot to get through, so put the mince pies down and let's crack on. First up, the biggest story of this year has to be the progress made on pharmacist prescribing. And I can think of no one better to talk us through this topic than our trusty correspondent, Corinne. Oh, thank you, Nigel. Who you may remember from previous episodes. Well, yes, pharmacist independent prescribers, PIPs, PIPs, lots has happened this year. But um, we know that there's already around 15,000 qualified PIPs. And the long-term plan is that every newly qualified pharmacist will be an IP by the time they register in 2026. But that does still leave tens of thousands of already qualified pharmacists behind who might want to become independent prescribers themselves. Mm, Yeah, that's not ideal, is it? What's happening about that? Quite a lot, actually. Um, There's loads more training places have been opening up. Health Education England opened applications for 3,000 places. They were all funded as well. There's been similar schemes opening this year in Scotland and Wales for hundreds more pharmacists to train. And significantly, you no longer have to wait for two years post-graduation before you can join one of those training courses. That's good. And do we know what uptake has been like so far? We haven't got the latest figures at the moment, no. Um, We do know, though, it does rely on having an understanding employer as well as access to support and mentoring. And we have heard of, to bring a slightly negative angle into this otherwise great story, we have heard of some problems with people getting access to, we call it a DPP. That's somebody that essentially is a mentor for the hands-on element of the training. Some people say there just aren't enough DPPs to go around. That must be a massive problem because you can't start a course with that one, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I could paraphrase what um, Graham Stretch said to me. He's the president of the Primary Care Pharmacist Association. Without sufficient numbers of DPPs, potential new pharmacist prescribers are all dressed up with nowhere to go. Oh, always good for a quote, our Graham. So saying they can get a DPP, where would they eventually work once they are qualified? 
Yeah, good question. Um, it varies by sector and by country, actually. It can be pretty straightforward, like for those on the training pathway in general practice, for example. But on the other hand, um, community pharmacists in England, perhaps particularly if they're in small independence, they might struggle to find anywhere that they can use and refine their new prescribing skills, we have been told. But that might be about to change, as you revealed uh, earlier this year, Nigel. Yes, I, w- I was speaking to the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer for England, David Webb, and he was telling me that NHS in England would be commissioning new Pathfinder pilots, which would be looking at testing a pharmacist prescribing service from the beginning of next year. Wasn't that being hailed as getting the health service through the nurses' strike in the uh, Telegraph just this weekend? Is that what I read? (laughs) Well, yes, but um, don't believe everything you read. We revealed that back in August, so it was planned way before that. To be honest, it's probably just ministers feeding a bit of a dodgy newsline to a friendly broadsheet rather than anything actually that's going to break the nurses' strike. It's a shame you can't see my shocked Pikachu face at this point. Pikachu face. <laughs> the meme, shocked Pikachu face. Keep, keep up, Nigel. Has anyone else seen a shocked Pikachu face? No, can't no. I have. Just grin. That means I'm either very young or very old, if I know what that meme is. I'll go with very young. So moving on, these type of schemes have been in Scotland and Wales for a while now. Mm-hmm. So what do we know already about this type of work? It's been going really well. Um, Scotland's Pharmacy First Plus service, that's led by independent prescribers for common clinical conditions. That kicked off in September 2020 and it's been going really, really well. It's been very welcomed by patients, we're hearing. In Wales, independent prescribers have been delivering clinics since 2016, generally on a health board level, um, but actually really excitingly, um, the first Welsh national level independent prescribing service, which they're calling PIPs, started in April this year. Could this actually affect how attractive community pharmacy is in England? I think it very well could. It could perhaps encourage people to, first of all, consider a career in community pharmacy and to stay in it once they're there. Um, It certainly could offer um, a more fulfilling clinical career if this is something that you want to do. Um, Although we can't forget that all sectors of pharmacy are struggling with workforce shortages at the moment, and we could be seeing that for quite some time yet. That is a prediction I could fairly confidently make for next year. May I remind you that last year you were predicting big things for pharmacy apprenticeships in our end-of-year pod. What happened to all of that? Oh, yeah, you were, weren't you, Corinne? (laughs) Yes, glossing over that. It doesn't seem like a huge amount has happened on that, and by a huge amount I haven't been able to find out really anything at this stage, so... The whole idea does seem to be on pause at the moment. So you get zero points for that prediction then, Karim. But can you turn it around in 2023? What are your predictions for next year? Well, the word prediction to me kind of implies something exciting and what I'm about to say isn't at all, but I'm predicting that we'll see continued squeezes on pharmacists' pay. It might even result in some in hospital taking industrial action along with other Unite members. That's certainly something that has been talked about and the weeks leading up to us recording this today. Yes, alongside lots of other people in the NHS as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, On a slightly different note, we early next year we're also going to see the final report of the Independent Commission on Pharmacy Professional Leadership. Bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Absolutely, yes, I should really just say the acronym. Uh, That was set up by the four chief pharmaceutical officers of the UK. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going to be in this yet, but as Dawn recently outlined in her podcast on consultant pharmacists... We'll hear from her in a little bit. It could lead to all advanced pharmacists being credentialed by the RPS across the UK. 
might even lead to a single leadership body for pharmacy, including technicians. A royal college? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. And we'll find out. We'll find out much more next year, I think. But um, what's certain is it's all part of the further development of pharmacy as a profession, which will certainly keep on accelerating next year. Excellent. Thanks, Corinne, for all that. I'm sure you'll be back on the pod in the near future to update us. Mm-hmm. Now, Dawn. Hi, Nigel. You're here to talk us through an area we've had a special focus on in the PJ this year, pharmacogenomics. Yep, that's right. Uh, Well, we started off the year not really knowing what would happen with pharmacogenomics or whether our readers would really engage with the topic, but turns out loads has happened and it really feels like there's been a shift in the perception of how pharmacogenomics will influence the way pharmacists work. Hopefully we've played a small part in that. And some of our listeners may remember you in the Netherlands hacking into a specimen <laughs> pot. Gosh. Yeah, that's going to take me a while, isn't it? Yeah, it probably is. Because I haven't had much to drink this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might have done. Mm, I think that was it. I haven't got any more spit left. <laughs> Just need to collect. I'm still cringing. Yeah, not my most glamorous moment. I was visiting a pharmacist there called Fleur, and she works in one of hundreds of community pharmacies in the Netherlands that are offering testing for a wide range of genetic variants that could affect responses to common drugs. And it was really fascinating to hear how pharmacists there advise GPs on when tests are needed, as well as conducting the actual tests and feeding back results to patients. And I also spoke to community pharmacists running similar services in Canada and Australia. But when are we going to get that here? Yeah, well, that's a good question, isn't it? We did report exclusively in October that pilots of pharmacogenomic testing before prescribing everyday drugs such as statins, antidepressants and PPIs are going to start in GP practices in the northwest of England from next month. It's a pretty big development, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably going to be the biggest scheme of its kind in the world if it's rolled out across the NHS. And there are other similar schemes planned in Scotland and Wales too. Well, no Scotland, they'll probably end up overtaking England in a few years' time. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Um, The researchers behind the pilots at the University of Manchester say that it could become a national programme within a year. But if I'm okay to make a prediction at this stage, Nigel? Go on then. All right. I think it might take longer than that. Uh, This is the NHS we're talking about. And getting the IT system up and running, the workforce training in place and the systems for testing on this scale will take time. But what impact, when it's fully rolled out, could this have? Well, if you take someone like me, who is almost, well, okay, definitely middle-aged. Surely not. (laughs) It's hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, There's a pretty high chance that the way that I respond to a drug I'm prescribed over the next decade or so will be influenced by my genes. And that means that I'd benefit from pharmacogenomic testing. So putting that into context, a major international study, which is about to be published as we're recording this, is expected to show that pharmacogenomic panel testing before prescribing commonly used drugs reduces adverse drug reactions by 30%, which is massive. Yeah, 30% is massive. Mm. Wow. How will pharmacists be involved in all of this? Well, obviously GP pharmacists will be involved with the new primary care pilots that we just talked about, and hospital pharmacists are already extensively involved in um, pharmacogenomic testing before starting certain types of chemotherapy. But it's not yet clear what role community pharmacists here in the UK will have. What would it look like in community pharmacy? Well... At the pharmacy that I visited in the Netherlands, they did the tests on the premises and then they sent them away to a local laboratory where they had these huge machines 
that just ran these DNA tests all day long and then they waited about two weeks for the results. And um, it was all connected up with um, an IT system. So the test results were available to the pharmacists at the point of care um, when they were talking to patients. Did you not listen to Dawn's podcast? Um, yeah, I did. I just <laughs> forgot. <laughs> if I'm going to make another prediction... Go on, then. I'd say that the success of any pharmacogenomic service, whether it's in primary or secondary care, will hinge on the involvement of pharmacists. Because that's what they do. They're the experts on giving prescribing advice based on patients' characteristics. So whether that be age, weight, comorbidities, or in future, genetics. Yeah. Obviously, some level of training will be needed, though, um, to enable pharmacists to do this. So we did, we did a survey back in April, and that showed that only one in 10 pharmacists felt prepared for using pharmacogenomics to guide patient care. That's a bit surprising, really, considering how close, well, it sounds like we are, to it being part of routine care. Yeah, I think it's probably to do also with people not knowing what they need to know, if you know what I mean. So, you know, I don't think it's going to be the case that every pharmacist is going to need a PhD in genomics to be able to offer this service. So it's well within the scope of practice. There's just going to be a little bit of extra training involved. So any more predictions before we move on? I predict that in the absence of any comprehensive NHS service next year, there will be a market for private services. And community pharmacy might just step in to fill that gap. In fact, we already know of one company, Day-Lewis, that's planning a pharmacogenomic testing pilot for early next year. But surely if it's available privately, that's going to create a bit of a barrier for quite a lot of the population because they're not going to be able to afford to pay for a test, are they? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it would exacerbate health inequalities if it was just a private service. But I guess the the plan is it for it to become an NHS service eventually. I guess a bit like flu vaccination services. It started off as a private service in community pharmacy and then um, and now it's available on the NHS. You've got to start somewhere, yeah. I think. Yeah, proof of concept. Thanks, Dawn. And if any of our listeners didn't hear your fantastic pharmacogenomics episode, then uh, you can check it out wherever you found this. Thanks, Nigel. All right, so it's all very well talking about this genomics whiz-bang stuff, but that's no use if you don't actually have any drugs to offer in the first place. And if there's been one major theme from the year, it's just how broken our medicine supply system really is. And with more on this, here's our investigations editor, Carolyn. Hello. Uh, Hello. Yeah, so this year saw drug manufacturers reporting the highest level of shortages for two years. And they were for some pretty heavily relied on products too, like alindronic acid, paroxetine, and even some drugs used after a stroke, like um, the thrombolytic alteplase. And of course, HRT. Yes, you won't have missed those shortages. They were all over the news. And they came just as awareness of menopausal symptoms were rising too. But in fairness to the government, they have been trying to fix the problem, putting in place 17 serious shortage protocols since May. Seven of those are still in effect because of stock issues. And we've got a clip of you talking about this very same topic on LBC. Some pharmacists are worried that a shortage of medicines is putting patients at risk. This comes from a poll of more than 1,500 pharmacists for the Pharmaceutical Journal. Carolyn Wickware is investigations editor at the Pharmaceutical Journal and uh, wrote this article. So no one better to speak to, Carolyn. Tell me what uh, the pharmacists have been telling you. So the pharmacists have been saying that uh, over half have said that um, from across the UK, they're having increasing issues um, accessing medicines that they need for patients. Um, And this is ultimately putting patients at risk. And this is for commonly used drugs for osteoporosis and inhaler and insulin. Say professional. I don't think so. (laughs) 
Anyway, our survey did illuminate the severity of having thousands of products out of stock or discontinued this year. All year, pharmacists have been telling us about the problems uh, caused by these shortages. In some cases, patients have had to miss doses. Switching patients to alternative treatments has caused confusion for both patients and clinicians. And we even heard of one case where a patient missed out on a palliative care treatment that could have helped ease their symptoms at the end of their life. Is there any sign of, of anything getting better? Actually, I was at an event in September and the head of pharmacy at AAH was asked the exact same question, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? And he was very clear, no. And this is something I'm hearing from lots of people on the manufacturing side. There are a lot of reasons for this, far too many to cover here. This is an international issue with many countries facing distribution issues post-COVID, but the UK really isn't helping itself by increasing the taxes on branded medicines by fivefold in the two years between 2021 and 2023. We've even heard that this is causing manufacturers to send their products elsewhere. But they, they would say that though, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would. And every country has some taxes on medicine products. It's worth noting that the information that we're getting here on medicine shortages is very tightly controlled because of commercial interests. None of this is any consolation to community pharmacists, of course, who are struggling every day to get medicines for their patients and in many cases are spending more money than they have to do so. Do you have any good news? Any predictions for good news next year? Come on, Carolyn, you can do it. Well, there are a few services in the pipeline that community pharmacies in England may be happy about. We've already talked about the IP service that's in the works already. There's also the contraception monitoring service that will roll out in January. And also, I hesitate to make this prediction again, but we could see a pharmacy first service roll out from next year. Maybe. Well... (laughs) The latest health secretary has mentioned it a few times with all the pressures on the NHS this winter would be a good time to announce it. Yeah, they've mentioned it enough times. Yeah, they have. And surely if they do introduce a service like that, it has to come with new funding for community pharmacy, right? Pharmacy negotiators have been pretty clear that any new services need to come with new funding, but we'll just have to see. The pressure is mounting. Even the Daily Mail has launched a Save Our Pharmacies campaign. So who knows what progress can be made here. Wow. Yeah, when the Daily Mail gets on the case, who knows? Thank you, Carolyn. Now, before we hear from our final team member, here's a clip that sounds really old. Since we learned about Omicron, our strategy has been to buy time, time to assess it, but also to build our defences. And by far and away, the best way to build our defences remains our booster programme, and it's great to see so many uh, people coming forward. Data journalist Julia Robinson. Wow, that seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah, we've had two health secretaries since then, haven't we? Was it three? I've lost count. I've lost count, I can't remember. This time last year, we just had the first COVID antiviral molnupiravir approved in the UK, with a second Paxlovid on its way to being approved. Yeah, it was an exciting time, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember feeling really optimistic, actually, about the impact that these particular drugs were going to have on COVID going forward. There was promise of them speeding up recovery time and stopping infections from progressing. Some of you might remember back in February, we spoke to Fiona Mara, who was an infectious disease pharmacist in Scotland, who was directly involved in prescribing and dispensing the antivirals. I write the prescription and it's automatically sent to community pharmacy, which is great. And then that community pharmacy delivers it to the patient on the same day. So really nice. I mean, the key for this is making sure that, of course, patients have COVID and are isolating. So, we're, you know, they're not having to leave their home if they don't need to. And that we have a kind of slick pathway in place to make sure that happens. 
that certainly shows how central pharmacy was to getting the appropriate antivirals out to patients within a really short time frame. And of course, another area pharmacists worked incredibly hard on was the COVID vaccination programme, administering millions to the public. And now it looks like COVID vaccinations are going to be offered as a seasonal service for people who want to get an annual booster. Well, that kind of sums up what happened this year. Although COVID-19 is still very much with us, it's kind of become more business as usual. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, COVID's definitely not gone away. Um, The latest figures show that 6,000 people were in hospital with it in November. But yeah, as you say, it's become a lot more kind of like everyday um, care. Having said that, one of the biggest things we've been focused on over the past year in relation to COVID has been the fallout from the pandemic in terms of the impact it's had on other services within the healthcare system. What do you mean by that? So there's been loads of coverage across news outlets regarding the massive treatment backlog it created. But one area we've highlighted a few times this year is the impact that COVID had on prescribing. So in some cases, the impact has been really positive. So, for example, by reducing antibiotic use. But in other areas, it's actually had quite a damaging effect. So in June, we reported that long-term opioid prescribing rates rose by almost a third during the pandemic. We also discovered that the number of patients with a high anticholinergic burden had increased during this time. And this is a trend that experts described as worrying. As outlined in a previous pod I believe. Yeah you did a really good podcast about that. Also more shockingly perhaps in October we published a piece exploring how the pandemic had led to increased antipsychotic prescribing in care homes. We heard from experts who said that in some cases this was to stop people from wandering around and spreading the virus. Thankfully analysis we've since carried out shows that this trend seems to be going back down again but we'll continue to keep an eye on it. Okay, so can can we move on? Because there's been a, a bit a lot of talk about long COVID. Yeah, this is a really big issue and it's one that's going to plague those affected for a very long time. So the latest figures from the ONS have shown that around 2.2 million people in the UK have reported symptoms of long COVID. Two million? Yeah. Uh, and around 1.9 million of those reported that at least one of their symptoms had continued for more than 12 weeks. And many actually reported Omicron as their first infection. That's quite surprising, isn't it? Because Omicron for most people has been a milder illness. Yeah, I think a lot of people who have long COVID, they actually had quite mild um, COVID to start with, um, which is really interesting. Um, But actually, one even more shocking thing really is that people are having to wait a really long time to be seen. So um, the latest NHS figures show that in England, around a third of people with long COVID are having to wait 15 weeks or more for specialist care. There's also a lot of stigma around it. So a recent study of around 1,000 people with long COVID revealed that 95% had experienced some form of stigma directly related to their condition. So for example, by people who didn't consider it to be a real illness. And we've spoken to some pharmacists, haven't we, who they're not just getting stigma in society, they're getting out work yeah. from, from the NHS, who you would think would be more understanding. Yeah, we, we've heard from people who are really struggling with returning to work. So one person um, we spoke to said that 
when they tried to return, they were left to rely on their own medical knowledge and Facebook groups, uh, as well as some colleagues who accommodated them into their clinics for support with long COVID. She was never contacted by a human resources team member or shown much empathy by her employers at all. But even if you're working in the NHS, like it's it's not acceptable to be treated that way, is it, when, when you're suffering from a long-term condition like that? And one that you probably contracted at work. Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to treatments for long COVID, where might we be by the end of next year? So hopefully we'll be much further forward in terms of research into long COVID and much closer to a potential treatment for those affected. So there's a study currently looking at famotidine, neratidine, rivaroxaban and colchicine. And hopefully we'll get some positive results from that. Well done for pronouncing all those drugs correctly. Thanks, I've had a lot of practice over the past year. (laughs) There's also going to be some more results from the panoramic study looking at the use of antivirals in non-hospitalised patients. And on this topic, it looks like community pharmacies could be commissioned to dispense these antivirals to vulnerable patients in 2023. So COVID aside, what might be another big development next year? So one area I'm super excited about for next year is psychedelics. This year, we've had some really intriguing trial results, including a phase three trial looking at MDMA for severe PTSD and a phase 2B trial exploring the use of psilocybin for treatment resistant depression with a phase three trial due to start very soon. Yeah, so we've been hearing about these for years, haven't we, these drugs, but now they're actually showing proper results in big clinical trials, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're really emerging as as very promising drugs for lots of different uh, indications, not just depression. So they're also showing a lot of potential for conditions such as eating disorders, for which there are very limited drug treatments currently. But as we've learned with medicinal cannabis, even if these drugs get to the point of being legalised, there are a lot of hurdles. These drugs are unlike anything doctors are currently prescribing. They work in a completely different way and they need to be combined with therapy. So it's not going to be straightforward to get them routinely prescribed if things go that way. It'll be interesting to keep following them over the next year. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will be. Also, um, another prediction, um, and this kind of falls under the overall de-prescribing agenda that we've got at the moment. Um, I definitely think there'll be more of a move towards digital therapeutics. So, for example, earlier this year, NICE recommended uh, a mobile app over sleeping pills for the treatment of insomnia. And in the past month, um, it's also recommended the use of digital CBT for children and young people with symptoms of mild to moderate anxiety. Interesting. But before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you about a drug that's been in the news the past few weeks, that new Alzheimer's drug. Lecanemab. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, so the phase three results released last month suggest that it could reduce cognitive decline in patients with early stage Alzheimer's. This has been described as a historic moment in dementia research because for the first time, it suggests that you can change the course of this disease. However, it is hard to predict what's going to happen. There's quite a lot of drawbacks with this particular drug, so the side effects are significant. And there's some questions around whether it could actually make a noticeable difference to patients and their families. What I could predict, though, is that this breakthrough will pave the way for more new dementia drugs. Thanks, Julia, for that. And I think that's a wrap on 2022. And thank you to the whole team around this table for producing some absolutely brilliant journalism this year. Thanks, Nigel. 
I also want to thank all our contributors and experts who've come on the pod this year. And of course, I want to thank our loyal listeners who like and subscribe or follow us. Which you can still do. Do it right now if you haven't before. Click the like or subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. So we've made our predictions for pharmacy in 2023, but what do you think we've missed? Let us know on social media using the hashtag PJPod or email us at editor at pharmaceutical-journal.com. Until next year, bye-bye. Bye.